Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. We have a listener request for Macworld's Year in Review articles. Two of these are mostly photos, not great for radio, but the other two are mostly text. Macworld, January 1989. Scrapbook 1988, by the late Charles Sider. Some reached milestones, some threw stones, and some wished they'd stayed at home. The year revisited. In 1988, Apple Chairman and CEO John Scully made between two and three million dollars. Asked by an interviewer if he thought he'd be at Apple five years from now, he earned a world-class award in the understatement category by replying that he had, quote, nowhere better to go. Actually, the whole computing community has nowhere better to go. For business software, graphics, music, scientific applications, and even video, the Macintosh is the most exciting game in town. Amiga people, please sit down. The video toaster wouldn't ship for another two years after this article. Even at IBM, the main news event of the year was the introduction of its cumbersome Mac imitation interface, OS2. A look at sales sheets shows that Apple executives are worth their lavish salaries. Hardware earnings are now over a billion dollars a quarter. The Macintosh 2 is performing according to goals, accounting for 15 to 20 percent of Macs being sold. And 1988 was the year when the more upscale SE finally overtook the Plus as the Mac line's bestseller. Worms in the Apple Although business boomed at Apple, not everything the company did during the year went according to plan. One of the year's big announcements, for example, may or may not yield a significant income. Apple's January proclamation of a long-term strategic alliance with Digital Equipment Corporation cheered all of us who believe the world should have an alternative to IBM. But by mid-year, DEC executives had begun to perceive just how capable the Macintosh 2 is of competing in the engineering workstation market DEC had marked out for its Microvax desktop solution. This strategic infelicity apparently persuaded DEC to rethink its enthusiasm for cooperating with Apple. And by autumn, DEC watchers noticed that the flow of happy press releases about the alliance had slowed to a trickle. Another questionable venture is Apple's entry into the Unix market. AUX didn't do much for the Unix universe or for the Mac world last year, in spite of some sometimes frantic press activity. As it stands, you can't use most Macintosh applications under AUX 1.0, and the icon interface that's supposed to give users easier access to the power of Unix isn't quite there yet. On the other hand, no other scheme is likely to make Unix palatable to the masses, so there's a market there if the right Macintosh products can be developed. And then there's the story of Apple's curious lawsuit over the Mac's user interface. As Bill Gates observed, it's like two guys living across the street from a mansion. When they try to break into the place at the same time, one of them complains that he thought of doing it first. Apple apparently believes that it swiped the Windows Menus mouse scheme from Xerox fair and square, and that somehow, no one noticed. The graceful thing would have been to let OS2 and Presentation Manager sync under their own weight. This Mac-alike operating system takes up most of a 20-megabyte hard disk all by itself, and to let Hewlett-Packard's new wave enjoy its own small market share. 
The whole affair seems like the sort of corporate legal bungling one associates with IBM, and in some circles, it has made Apple appear a less attractive business associate. Surveys show that 85% or so of Mac users thought the suit was a bad idea. Inside Apple, the roles of the players shuffled considerably in 1988. Apple set up a special government marketing unit, put overseas marketing on a more independent footing, and settled in for a long campaign in corporate offices. Jean-Louis Gasset held no fewer than three titles during 1988, finishing the year as president of the Apple Products Division in charge of marketing, research and development, and worldwide manufacturing. Asked to describe Apple in the 1990s, Gasset replied, Apple will be even more fun. It will be for him anyway. Actually, it wasn't, because... And one night I had dinner with John Scully and he asked me what I thought of him and I told him. So, uh, so I got fired, uh, which, which, which was very helpful. You know, John, John Scully is my benefactor. He hired me, gave me several promotions, and then the, 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 the physical and the financial push to become an entrepreneur. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm in his debt, really. I'm not being uh, polite at this time. And <laughs> Hyper card. Apple held a splashy first birthday party for its favorite young prodigy, Hypercard, featuring proud parents reminiscing about the act of creation. If everyone upgrades to 4 megabytes of RAM, Hypercard could become the all-powerful, low-cost, dream desk accessory plus interface of the future. But in 1988, despite furious development of nifty stacks, Hypercard was still most often used as a sort of bulky database with limited internal searching and reporting features. Even developers with a long-standing interest in low-priced software don't have many uses for Hypercard. Asked in a French magazine interview if Borland would someday be developing stackware, Philippe Kahn gave a characteristically frank answer that translates as something between No Way Jose and You've Got to Be Kidding. Memory Madness If you ordered a RAM upgrade in June 1988, you probably don't have it yet. As the result of some Reagan administration trade policy efforts that may be charitably described as mistaken, the price of memory rose 150%. This was outstandingly bad news for software developers who, having seen prices drop for several years, figured that 1-megabyte SIMs would soon drop below $100, opening the door for large, feature-rich programs. Although it is widely assumed that prices will start to edge downwards in 1989, the high-priced RAM era may be starving out the prospects of some of these programs. Furthermore, there is no law of physics that dictates ever-declining chip prices. These emerge from a type of cutthroat competition that the big RAM makers may, like the cooperative gentlemen they are, decide is undignified and unnecessary. The Spread Spreadsheets remain, with word processors and page layout programs, among the most popular Macintosh applications, and Microsoft remains master of the spreadsheet market. Microsoft Excel has been one of the top three Macintosh programs for the last three years, with an estimated 85% of the spreadsheet market. 
That's bad for other spreadsheet developers. But what's even worse is that Microsoft Multiplan owns a big chunk of the other 15%, and Microsoft Works is a best-selling program as well. Modern Jazz, Ancient History Among the year's discouraged developers was Lotus, which finally abandoned Modern Jazz in July. As demonstrated at Macworld Expo last January, Jazz was already a large program. One suspects that it ended up as a monster that demanded gobs of memory and a 68020 for acceptable performance from its spreadsheet. So Lotus decided to forego the uphill battle of selling Jazz to the corporate Macintosh 2 elite and is now pitting its Macintosh hopes on a version of Lotus 1-2-3. To quote Chapter 4 of Guy Kawasaki's The Macintosh Way, Product development requires an environment that appreciates great products. By contrast, Lotus's modern jazz is an example of MBA analysis suffocating a product. One of the primary reasons for killing modern jazz was its inability to run Lotus 1-2-3 macros. This is like killing CD players because they won't play records. I heard that Lotus sold 60,000 copies of jazz, the precursor to modern jazz, and got 80,000 back. Even the people who pirated it returned it. Welcome to the Computer Museum's 1993 Computer Bowl 5. Go to the second, next question, Bill. PC Letter publishes a vapor list of software products that have been announced but not shipped. One software program holds the record for being on the PC vaporware list for the longest time, four years and two months. What program holds this dubious distinction? All right, we have an answer from Jean-Louis Gasset. Uh, Lotus 123 for the Macintosh. Yes, indeed. Lotus 123 for the Mac, okay. <laughs> Battle of the Titans. Undaunted by the fate of others, software giants Ashton Tate and Infermix challenged Microsoft with new feature-packed spreadsheets. Full impact, Ashton Tate's spreadsheet bid offers advanced text and layout capabilities reminiscent of Trapeze, not a spectacular market success. It handles huge spreadsheets, up to half a million cells, and includes macro capabilities beyond those in Excel 1.5. Presumably, Infomix has been studying the efforts of Microsoft, Lotus, and Ashton Tate with keen interest. Widely known to Macworld Expo-goers as a leading purveyor of free luggage and cheap thrills, the company was promising, as this article went to press, to finally release its powerful but supposedly easy-to-use spreadsheet, Wings, by year's end. Special Macworld Expo edition 88 of the Computer Chronicles. Joining us in the studio now is George Morrow. George, you were at Macworld. It's clear that the market is just wide open because the big hitters had nobody in their booths compared to some little guys like Wings. Wings, this software program I've never heard of, there were 45 people, 50 people standing mm -hmm. in line. Guys were standing in line for more than a half hour. The fellow at the end of the line had a thing, a card switch. This is the end of the line. If you want to stand in line, get behind me. Interesting. Sidebar, photograph of the Wings booth at Macworld Expo staffed by at least four employees dressed in bright red flight suits. Caption, Will it fly? For two expos running, the spectacular Wings booth featured uniformed attendants, free luggage, and a Leonard Nimoy video. Everything but software. A plus for publishers. In the publishing arena, 
The ability to separate Macintosh color graphics is one of the most significant Mac economic trends of the year. It's a simple matter of finding the cheapest way to perform a traditional job. Conventional separations cost two to three hundred dollars, compared to fifty dollars to run out four Linotronic negatives of an Illustrator drawing. In other words, turning to word processors, 1988 saw the first serious challengers to Microsoft Word and MacWrite. The long-awaited, much-discussed FullWrite was acquired by Ashton Tate from Ann Arbor Softworks, and finally. A mere two years after it was announced, shipped in August. It has features that go fairly far into page layout. Why people would want to gum up their word processor with DTP features is beyond me. It's yet another example of how integrated programs are a neat way to do more than one thing poorly. In addition, all this power means that the program really needs a Macintosh 2 or an SE or a plus with an accelerator for acceptable performance. The only word processor really generating much in the way of sales aside from Word, right now, finally made it to version 2.0 late in the year. The new release brings file translation into the program itself and includes a beefier dictionary and a mail merge function. MacWrite distinguished itself by being the only major word processor still unable, despite several upgrades, to handle multiple windows. All the bases. Despite lively interest in fourth dimension throughout the year, high-end database programs for the Mac haven't been spectacular sales hits. Somehow, developers and the press perceive a need for all powerful, fully programmable relational databases, while the majority of users perceive a need for something they can learn easily and used to manage modest mailing lists. Hence the success of the only Macintosh database that is selling well, FileMaker, which now sports a Claris label. It was previously owned by Neshoba Systems. DBase Max sales for 1988 were not a source of great cheer to Ashton Tate. Blythe Software, developer of the once-dominant Omnis database family, closed its United States offices and retreated to Britain. Aceus struggled all year to produce a speed upgrade and applications shell for Fourth Dimension. The long-awaited Skeleton program finally appeared in September. The main database news of the year was the appearance of Foxbase Plus Mac, a fast program that allows easy ports of DBase applications from the DOS world. Good initial Foxbase sales suggest that even among developers, convenience in this case the convenience of using existing applications, has far more allure than bells and whistles. Screen Dreams One market distinguished by significant new products in 1988 was desktop video. In particular, VideoWorks 2 from Macromind took its place as a serious tool for the development of enhanced, animation-based presentations. Although a Mac 2-based system for video processing isn't cheap, it's a bargain compared to anything of comparable quality. Several suppliers brought out NTSC video interface cards for the Mac 2, allowing images to be transferred directly to ordinary video recorders. The result was the appearance of some amazingly amateurish productions, but then many first-year efforts in page layout were also disasters. Is this a system? 
Enough developers complained about software crashes with Apple's new System 6.0 that Apple released 6.0.2 to major developers a few months later. This release fixed an assortment of bugs, primarily having to do with color and sound. But while release 6.0.2 fixes most of 6.0's contributions to compatibility headaches, it doesn't help if the application is at fault. Just as there are many ways to get to work faster that don't involve slavish observance of traffic signals, many developers find that it's possible to speed program performance by ignoring Apple's programming guidelines. Linnea Johnson, System Software Product Manager at Apple, points out that as we move into increasingly complex operating systems, every update will be a new exercise in guideline enforcement. Paradoxically, this means that in the near future, as Macintosh hardware gets faster, software will be getting slower. Now you CDs, now you don't. Apple released its CD-ROM drive and HyperCard CD extensions, and Toshiba and Panasonic also introduced drives. But the CD-ROM market remains stalled in a classic who-moves-first deadlock. Why should people develop new CD-ROMs when there are so few drives out there? Why should I buy a drive when there are so few CD-ROMs? At a Microsoft conference in March, announcing the dramatic entry of a major player, Microsoft, into the Mac CD-ROM arena, the remarkable fact emerged that no real products were ready to be released to the assembled multitudes. Apple, however, maintains that the CD is central to John Scully's visionary knowledge navigator concept and may yet force this market as a matter of corporate commitment. Perhaps in 1989, Microsoft, as part of its own corporate commitment, will finish porting its bookshelf CD, a reference set for writers, into a tool for use with Word on the Mac. The Macintosh in a non-Mac world a bit of good news for the Mac, bringing the Mac further validation in a non-Mac world, is the announcement of AutoCAD. AutoCAD's dominance in drafting is so complete that many firms that would prefer to use Macs have been forced back into the blue world of the PC for compatibility. AutoCAD for the Mac promises to help Macintosh penetration in engineering and technical offices. Likewise, WordPerfect for the Mac while unlikely in its current form to set new standards and word processing, is nonetheless a significant bridge product, given WordPerfect's dominance in DOS offices. For the educational market, the good news is the giant program Mathematica. The title was suggested by a former Apple employee, 1S Jobs. This general-purpose research tool demands a loaded machine. The manual observes that a 4 to 5 megabyte Macintosh Plus is desirable. Anyone out there got a 5 megabyte plus? But delivers the most comprehensive, easiest to use system for bringing the power of mathematics to bear on research problems. It may become a university standard, replacing most traditional programming methods. And for the next few years, the Mac is the cheapest target hardware it can use. This is an example of a new class of Mac program, one developed on workstations and ported to the Mac, rather than to the PC, because PC hardware can't easily handle the required memory. The 386 era began in 1986, on paper. It took a few years before compilers like Watcom C began supporting, and then bundling, DOS extenders. 
386 Savvy AutoCAD wouldn't ship until 1990, and not even PC 32-bit multitasking pioneer OS 2 would use 386 protected mode until late 1991. Getting the word out and in. This year saw the introduction of a collection of fax modems and advanced scanners. Although scanners for the Mac were one of the earliest hardware enhancements, the redoubtable Thunderscan, for example, the real news is Hyperscan from Apple, software to transfer images directly into HyperCard, complete with half-toning and all sorts of additional image processing. Remembering that that was a significant time-saver in the days before ubiquitous multitasking. Journal of a Plague Year 1988 became the year when the, for most of us, hitherto unrelated words computer and virus came together to form a common and feared compound. Three varieties swept through the Mac community. One was spawned by some Canadian jokers who wanted to wish users peace on the Mac 2's birthday. Much more serious were the Envire and Scores viruses, which managed to incapacitate thousands of Macs, causing uncounted hours of downtime. There's all sorts of people involved for weird motives. One might be to impress his father, another's motive might be just to have fun on a Friday night, yet a third's motive is to make money in coke by selling secrets to the Soviets. Or to impress Jodie Foster. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I, uh, I love my Macintosh. I discovered two weeks ago that my Mac was infected by the Envire. You did? I was oh. sitting in the middle of the night and I heard this voice say, don't panic. And at first I wasn't sure what it was. The space between this voice talking would begin to decrease. Yes. And so I, I had not programmed it. Mm -hmm. So I realized I had an infection and I did some research. I got some magazines and I found out that the Envire did have, if you use a program called Macintalk, yes. this is a phrase it would use. Or if, uh, the, if you didn't have Macintosh, it would beep in a succession of beeps. So I got some various programs. I had about 12 or 14 files that were infected. It took me about two evenings to trace it, to, uh, to download the where stuff. Did you, where did it come from? Where did the, how did you I get infected? I don't know. I know it was infected in June because I had about five files infected mm -hmm. in June. And I don't know which of those files was infected, but it may have been a game or something that I may have inadvertently copied from a, uh, copied from a BBS or something just to play or a, or a graphic. I don't know. The only positive side of this epidemic is that it inspired many Mac users to a salutary degree of caution regarding such things as using only copies of application disks and backing up hard disks. It was also gratifying to see the way the Mac community rallied to the threat, developing and uploading a variety of freeware and shareware antiviral products onto bulletin boards for wide distribution. Similar products in the IBM world cost from $80 to $200. Bigger and better? By the last months of 1988, nearly every major program had added color support in some fashion, despite price and availability problems for RAM. Most releases of major applications required one meg of memory or more, and things are still heating up. Apple recently started shipping its 68030-based Macintosh 2 with 1.4 meg floppies that can read both DOS and Mac disks. Other hardware developers are working on 030 cards for existing Mac 2s and SEs. 
that the hottest Macintosh systems now compete with scientific mini-computers for hardware power is good for the minority who need and can afford that kind of equipment. But what about the average Mac owner? Apple's last round of price increases in September put the Macintosh 2 safely beyond the economic reach of the rest of us and raised some disturbing questions about the company's intentions. Would Apple really rather be a high-margin workstation shop like Sun than a mass-market organization? Does John Scully's vision of a, quote, $25 billion company mean that there will be five customers left in North America paying $5 billion apiece for their Mac 14s in 1996? And will those five be willing to pay $4 million each for their subscriptions to Macworld? Well, the five customers left part was right anyway. If it comes to that, I hope they will. But I'd rather see the Macintosh base broadening out rather than shrinking as it mounts into the fiscal stratosphere. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more stories or join the Very Quiet Discord server for this podcast at www.macfolkloreradio.com.